Uh, but here we go. We are in the middle of a series called The Armor of God, Body Armor, and we're looking at Paul's warning to the church, which is us, with the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. In chapter 6, he concludes the book, talking about all sorts of things. Uh, he's telling children to obey parents, husbands and wives to love each other. And uh, as he's laying out these things, he also then says, hey, there's an attack on your life as you have made a decision to follow Christ because there's someone that's not happy about the decision that you've made. And so as you walk into this place, maybe that's your story. You thought in your life that your life would get easier when you made a decision to follow Christ. And although you're saved and although you have freedom and peace and all these things that you're walking in, you're also realizing that for practical reasons, your life has become harder because there's an attack on it. Now, the enemy is an adversary that's very real. His job is to steal, to kill, and destroy, and he's not going to waste his time on things that don't matter. If he already has you, there's no point in him investing in a detrimental way into your life. And so when you uh, follow Christ, then the attack comes at a much greater level. And so you've seen that, and you're starting to be confused by that, and you're in church this morning, and hopefully you're going to learn and grow as to how this process works. But make no mistake. When you decide to make a decision to follow Christ, there is a collision course that you are on with the enemy himself because the enemy hates God, the enemy as a result hates you, and he wants to destroy your life. So that's the bad news. But the good news is we have some weaponry. We have a defense strategy. In fact, we have an offense that we'll get into in the next couple weeks when we put on the armor of God that we can then take and absorb the hit. And we said this since the first week. It's like football. To be a good football player, you take a hit and you give a hit. And so here we are in the middle of the series and Paul's warning to the church of this collision course. And we keep reading Ephesians 6 starting in verse 10. So here we go. Paul says to the church, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is a liar. He's not just someone who tells lies. His very essence is lying. He knows nothing but lies. And so he has schemes as a result. He's good at it. He's perfected his craft. He's a liar. And then here's the spiritual warfare defined as the invisible that affects the visible. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. So here is the armor, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Gird up your loins, he says. The belt of truth and having putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And then last week, as you put shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And here we are, week four in the series. In all circumstances, take, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we're going to answer a few questions in statement form in your bulletins, and there's going to be subheadings, and I'm just going to ask you to kind of fill these things in as you feel led so that you can take this with you when you go, because this is the crux of your defense. Number one, what is the purpose of a shield? So let's go back now 2,000 years. I'm not a historian, but let's try it out. If you were a Roman soldier 2,000 years ago, you would have all sorts of things at your fingertips. This was a militia that was well-trained. 
There were several kinds of shields that could be used when you were in an attack. But there are two that stand out. The first one would be a small shield. And the small shield was round. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. It was like a giant frisbee. And it was curled at the edges. It was strapped to the forearm, pretty light. And it was used for hand-to-hand combat. And so we'll get into this in just shortly as we conclude this series. But then there's also this sword. And we think of this sword as this, this long sword that would kill from a distance. But wars, just like spiritual battles, were fought mostly up close and personal. So they would fight from far off. They would have arrows. And they would have flaming arrows that we're going to talk about today. But then once it got close, they, they would engage in hand-to-hand combat. And when doing so, they would have a small shield. Because if you had a big shield, you couldn't fight. And they wouldn't have a big sword. They would have kind of like a, a dagger. And so 2,000 years ago, when you would get up close and personal, you could see if the person was scared. You could see if the person was a rookie on the force when it comes to fighting. You could see and smell what they had for breakfast. You could tell if they drank too much the night before. You can see in their eyes everything you needed to see as a warrior in the Roman militia. And so this was the first type of shield for hand-to-hand combat. But Paul's not talking about this type of shield. What Paul's referring to in the Greek is the larger shield. And the larger shield was heavy. The larger shield was about 4.5 by 2.5 feet. It was a massive plank of wood. And then on top of the wood, it would have been covered by metal or a leather that would have been treated. It would have been oiled so that when flaming darts would hit this shield, whether it was metal or this treated leather, they would extinguish. Because people were smaller than they are today, 4.5 feet high by 2.5 feet wide was all the protection that you needed. And so the idea is this. When you wear the shield of faith, it is all the protection that you will ever need. So the enemy can do whatever the enemy thinks he needs to do. But when you are wearing the shield, and it's as needed. So the first three are you always have them. The last three things in the armor are as needed, prescribed as needed. And so when the darts come, when the arrows come, when the flames come, and they try to burn up all around you, you have everything that you need in Christ. And so you pull up the shield and you're protected. And so what would also happen in the middle of this battle is it wasn't obviously just one person fighting, but it was thousands of people on the battlefield. And the first line of defense would be the ones who would carry these huge shields. And the shields were effective for the person that was behind them, but they, more importantly, were effective for the entire militia. And what they would do is they would link side by side, no cracks in the wall. We'll get to that in a little bit. And by doing so, it goes from an individual shield to now a wall or a fortress of protection. And to answer this first question, what is the core function of a shield? The core function of a shield is to protect. The core function of the shield of faith in your life is to protect you from these things that will destroy you, that are shot at you by your enemy, the adversary, the evil one. The shield's most effective when it's side by side with other soldiers making a wall. The core function is to protect. So then without it, You're not just vulnerable, hear me say this, you are incredibly, extremely vulnerable. It is your line of defense. So the first line is shields that form a wall. The second line, third line, fourth line, you have people with weaponry shooting over the wall, hiding behind the wall. They probably have their smaller shields in hand while they also have their hand-to-hand combat material. 
But these guys were, in a sense, the safest ones because they were right under the wall, linked together, no cracks. And there was a leader in every battle who was saying, form the wall, form the wall. The purpose of the wall is to protect. And the second thing is this. We need to understand how the enemy attacks. And so there's a couple of things that I want to lay out before you. The enemy has these arrows, and on top of that, they have fire on them. But the first thing that I want us to walk in, and I want you to write this idea down, is this. That we build this wall, we have this shield, it's the shield that protects. But then there is this arrow, there is this enemy who is continually shooting arrows at us, and he has an objective, and it is very clear. The first thing is this, he wants to burn down everything on the battlefield. So he's never content. He doesn't shoot a few arrows, walk back inside and say, job well done. Has anyone ever seen The Dark Knight? I've used this reference before. I'm going to use it again. Anyone? How many, how many of you like the old Batmans? This isn't coffee. It's just water, so I'm not going to get all jittery up here. I just couldn't find a water bottle. You ever seen that? Who in here would concur that the Dark Knight movies are just better than the other Batmans? Partially because Bruce Wayne is just awesome in, those, in that trilogy. But in that trilogy, the second one, I think, is the best. Heath Ledger, before he dies in real life, uh, takes on this role of the Joker that is second to none. Have you guys seen it? You like that movie? You guys remember this exchange with Alfred that Bruce Wayne has when they're trying to understand the psychology of the Joker? And they're saying, well, what motivates this guy? And Bruce Wayne and Alfred are scratching their heads, and they're trying to prescribe motive to the Joker. They're trying to find out what, in essence, makes him tip tick so they can properly address the enemy. And then Alfred has a brilliant response. He says, Mr. Wayne, some people just want to watch it burn. Just so you know, that's a pretty good impression too. <laughs> Are you guys tracking with that? Have you seen the movie? You know, some people just want to watch it burn. That's what the enemy is like. He wants to steal, to kill, destroy. It's never enough. It's never enough that he can, he can take you out. He wants to take your family out. He wants to take the community of believers out. He wants to take new life out. He wants to disrupt Aberdeen. He wants to disrupt South Dakota. He's having his way all across America, all across Europe. He is running wild right now. Are you tracking? He's, he's been pretty effective at taking thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of arrows, dipping them in a substance, lighting them on fire, and then shooting them, not outside of the walls of the church, but right into the church that's then infecting everything else. This is what he does. He wants to watch it burn. He hates you. He hates the church. He hates God. He hates his son, Jesus. He wants to watch it burn. Mass quantity. And so to think that you can somehow control the attack of the enemy without having the shield as your equipment as a first line of defense is naive and foolish and prideful and even more so, I'm just kind of going to go as I'm thinking of things. It's arrogant. It's incredibly arrogant. I mean, God is so much more powerful than our adversary, but man, without the Lord... We are cooked. The fire is all around us. We're playing with it, and our fate is sealed. And so as a result of that, we, we have this self-preservation mechanism within us. As a result of that reality, we have a natural response. And you would think, in our humility, we would say, well, we, we see the attack all around us, so what we're going to do is we're going to take up this shield of faith, and we're going to fight the battle with the Lord on our side. But here's what's happening, even, not even outside of the walls of the church, but inside of the walls of the church. People are taking up a shield because they're self-preservationists. 
But the shield that they're making is not a shield that God has given them. The shield that they're making is of their own terrible material. So here's one point that you can walk out of the sanctuary with or listen online with this morning. If you think you can fight the schemes of the devil with the shield that you somehow made with the material that you have at your fingertips, you are cooked. And you can just insert whatever life experience you want to prove the theory that I'm laying before you. The world is full of worldly wisdom, belief in self. And what happens as a result, and when you want to choose to believe in yourself as a means of fighting off the attacks of the enemy, and so you'll hear it, like if you're a social media junkie, you will hear a little 30-second script after 30-second script, and you'll just scroll with your thumb up of all of this wisdom from the world that it's giving you. If you just believe in yourself, if you, you, know, you, you could achieve all your dreams. No, the reality of the gospel is not believing in yourself. The reality of the gospel, look at me when I tell you this, is not self-exaltation. It is dying to self. It's the wisdom of this world that is going to give you this makeshift shield that you're carrying around in battle that's made of straw, and it's made so thinly and so weakly that when the enemy is just scoffing at this worldly wisdom, when he takes that arrow and he shoots it across the battle line, he knows something. It's not going to just go through the straw. It's lit on fire. It's going to burn that thing up, and it's going to take you down. If you think you can lean in on the world's wisdom to somehow fight spiritual battles, then the devil already has you. Are you tracking? You don't need more of what's already broken. You need a God who's in control. Everyone around you is making the same shield. This is the destruction of culture around us. So you have a shield made of straw. And then the person next to you has a shield that they've made a straw, and a person next to you that's made a shield made a straw. So now everything is going through the shield. Everything is being lit up through the fire onto the shield, and it has this domino effect where the enemy is now lighting the field on fire in mass quantity. And so to make your own shield is just naive. Here's another thing that happens in the way that the enemy attacks. The enemy, and I think this is going to be on a slide, the enemy will expose every weakness in the wall. This is what he does. And so to see our faith biblically, to see our faith theologically, we look at it through, lens, through two lenses. We, we have an individual faith that saves. It's that faith that you realize that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus to save you. It's the reason that you take and remember communion. And that faith that saves and sustains and transforms is in you. No one can make a decision. Your parents, if you're young, can't make a decision for you to follow Christ. You have to make that decision for yourself, which is why we do things differently around here. You, you don't get baptized until you've made the decision at New Life. You don't start taking communion until you've made the decision that Jesus is your personal Savior. So you have this shield of faith that saves you spiritually and the shield of faith that you wear is your own. No, no one can do it for you. It's an individual faith. Without it, you are in massive trouble. You have no protection spiritually over the realities of the next life when you go and meet Jesus. And he's either going to tell you, depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. It is contingent not on what you've done for the Lord, but it's contingent on what he's already done for you and the grace that you receive through faith. That's your individual faith. Which is why evangelicals say things like, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you have a shield that's protecting you from the arrows of the enemies? But it's not the only shield. The second half of the faith is not individual, but it's corporate. 
And corporate faith is a reality that we all walk in together. Corporate faith is why you're sitting here right here right now and not just always listening online. Corporate faith is you have your faith in Christ. I have my faith in Christ. We both have this shield, but the shield is most effective when it's band together as a wall. So what the enemy does to the church, what the enemy is doing as a result of how it can affect the church, how it can affect the family, is he is shooting mass quantity fire-lit arrows onto the shield, past the shield, and he's lighting up everything around it. And when our shield is just our own, but there are massive gaps between the shields, now all of a sudden the enemy with the fiery darts is exposing every weakness in the wall. The church is a wall. Does that make sense? The church isn't just you, and the church isn't just me. The church is us. The church is a wall. The church takes a stand on biblical truth. The church takes a stand on things when everyone else says that we're crazy. That we look to the Bible, which we'll get to in a little bit, as the authority in which we walk, and we band together, and when we feel like making decisions, the church is designed to give us individual shields that band together, that have a natural built-in accountability structure to them, so that we stand firm, like Paul says. We stand firm against the attacks of the enemy on our life. America is rugged individualism. The gospel is collective. And so because it's collective, we build a wall. And we don't build a wall, the enemy wreaks havoc. The enemy will expose every weakness in the wall. It's happening all around us. Every weakness in the wall. And so we'll use the family as an example. When you're saved... If you are a man who is a husband and a father, there is a great probability that your entire family will come to Christ because the way that God has wired you is the spiritual leader, whether you want that authority or not. And if you don't want that authority, the enemy will sure take it from you if you choose to give it away. But statistically, if you are a man who is a husband and a father, not every time because it's an individual choice, but most of the time, the whole family will start following you to church. Most of the time, your wife, who isn't saved yet, will start become, becoming vulnerable to the gospel and the example that you're giving her. Not every time, but a lot of times. Your kids, specifically if they're young, and you start to put in these biblical principles in place, and you start having a shield, and then they get their own shield, and your kids come to Christ and they get their shield. If you are the spiritual leader of your home, your job is then to shore up the cracks when everyone has the shield. And when you don't show up the cracks, even if you love Jesus as a man specifically, if you love Jesus, but you're not taking on that role of general in the military, if you are not, not in a way that is, you know, abusive or not in a way where you're trying to show how much power you have within the family dynamic of telling them the leader that you are, because once you have to tell someone that you're a leader, guess what? You're not a good leader. You shouldn't have to tell them. They should just know. And when you're humbly leading, when you're humbly leading by example, most of the time, your kids and your spouse will fall in line. And then your job becomes not just to have a shield, and for them not just to have a shield, but your job becomes to shore up the cracks so that there are no cracks in the wall. Because even when you're saved, if there are gaps in the wall, the arrows get through. If, if you're not giving up, if you're not pouring into your leadership role that God has given you, all of a sudden things are going to come up even when people are Christians because we all struggle. Maybe your kids are getting older and they're on the dating scene. 
You're a Christian, your kid's saved, you, you, kinda, you know the truth, but, but you're taking a back seat, you're not making sure that the shields are, are bound together, all of a sudden now it's time for them to start looking for a spouse. What do you do when things aren't going biblically? What do you do when they start to bring home someone that is openly saying, I don't love Jesus, I don't follow Jesus, there's this gap in the shield. Your job isn't to pay, play passive participant and just take the back seat. No, as a, as a man of the home who's a spiritual leader, the pastor of their home, you say, this is the truth that we stand on. You have your shield, I have my shield, there's going to be no gaps in this thing because the enemy is throwing arrow after arrow after arrow and it is lit on fire. It's personal faith, it's corporate faith, it's a wall. So your shield might be shored up. The metal and the leather are stopping the darts that are coming in. But man, we all have to be in this together. We shore that thing up. The arrows fly in a specific way that we have to guard against. Here, here's the third reality. There is a shield that's yours. There is a shield that's yours, and this goes back then to the progression of the armor. And there are ways that the shield is formed. And the first guiding principle, because it's the way that Paul starts, is your shield is held together. Put it on the screen, please. Your shield is held together by this thing called truth. Faith is held together by truth. How do you define faith? Write it down. Faith is defined by acting on, wearing the belt of, acting on the truth. In order to have faith, and this goes back to worldly wisdom, in order to have faith, you have to find truth. So then the question becomes, well, then how do you define truth? If you've missed the last few weeks, catch this. The way that you define faith is acting on the truth. The way you find, define truth is God's view on a matter. And so then if faith isn't anchored on the truth, then what it becomes is a straw shield. If faith isn't anchored on the truth, then it becomes a house of cards. God's truth stands above us, and it never compromises, and it never changes its mind. And if you don't access God's view on a matter, then you can forget having a substance discussion on faith because what you have is a wall that's been formed on straw. And that's what's happening around us. And this isn't outside of the church. This is inside of the church. Faith is believing the truth. Truth is knowing God's view on a matter. Faith is believing God is telling the truth. Faith is believing that even if you don't see it, God is telling you the truth. And faith, faith can get scary if it's not based on the right things. Here, here's truth and what it cannot be. Truth cannot be based on your feelings. How many of you have feelings? We talked about this, I think, week one when we talked about truth. How many of you have feelings that are ever-changing? And have you ever had a situation in your life where you've thought to yourself, Man, that felt so right at the time, but I am so thankful that I didn't lean in on that thing because I was emotional, and when emotions are high, wisdom is low, and if I would have acted at that point in time, I would have been a train wreck. Have you ever been there? It felt so right, and it turned out it was so wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that your feelings can't tell you the truth because sometimes your truth is aligned with your feelings, but the truth stands outside of you, and they always need to come together. And it's a scary reality, and this is what's happening. I keep saying this is what's happening around us, but it's because this is what's happening around us. When you listen to people talk, when you are scrolling through social media, when you are listening to different media outlets, what you will find in the lies of the enemy that is attacking with the flaming darts and the arrows that are shooting our way 
is that people are making decisions largely based on what? They're largely based on how they feel. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, because I feel that it's okay. I feel that it's best for my life. I feel that I can have my own faith based on the shield that I have created made of straw. But faith based on feelings, truth based on feelings, is incredibly dangerous. Feelings might line up, feelings might not line up. But feelings are typically circumstantially driven, and they're based on how things go. And so circumstances cannot can dictate feelings, and feelings cannot then dictate your truth. This shield of faith, your shield of faith that you wear, that anchors you in and protects you from the attacks of the enemy on your life, is a means of acting on the truth. Faith is acting on the truth, whether I feel like it or not. So here's a biblical example. Jesus is starting his ministry There's this guy named Peter. Maybe you've heard of him. He's the rock that God builds, Jesus builds his church on. He starts off pretty shaky, but even in his early ministry with Jesus, he makes some really right decisions. And the first one is in Luke 5. Peter's a fisherman. Jesus is talking to him over the water. He says, Peter, have you caught anything yet? Peter says, nope, it's been a terrible day. I'm paraphrasing. Read it for yourself. He says, cast out your net on the other side. Peter's probably thinking, Jesus, why don't you just stick to the preaching? Let me deal with the fishing. Because I know a few things. I've, I've built this little mini empire that's modest but getting me by. And I know how to catch a fish. He says, for 12 hours we've been casting our nets. He's thinking, what you're asking doesn't make any sense. And in fact, to top it all off, they're in shallow waters. And that's where the fish don't bite. And so he knows how this works. And Jesus says, well, I'm trying to teach you something. Just cast out your nets anyways. Peter doesn't feel like it. But he makes this clear decision. He says, because Jesus told me to do something. Because there is a truth that's built on a firm foundation and a shield that's solid wood covered in metal or leather. Because Jesus is above me and his opinions and perspectives are above mine when my feelings and even my intuition, even my gut and my instincts don't align with what Jesus says to do. I'm going to make a clear decision early on in this ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus. When he says something, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to do it. And the point of it is this, that's what faith looks like. So what do you do when what you want doesn't align with scripture? Here's what you do if you're saved. You do what Jesus says. And so he makes a clear decision to align himself in obedience to Jesus. Peter throws out the net on the other side. He gets the biggest catch of his life. He gets so many fish that the boat is drugged down. And he discovers a principle in his life that changes everything from that day forward. And here it is. Despite my own perception, if I simply do what God says, I will discover my finiteness with his infiniteness. Peter does something so radical. He he chooses to have faith in what he can't even see yet, and that's the point. Because if you have faith in only what you can see, that's not faith. That's just evidence that's building that you need to make a certain decision. Hebrews 11.1 says it like this. The writer, who we do not know, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you can see it, this is why Peter's so great. If you can see it, 
It's not faith. And so Jesus tells him to do something that he can't see because he knows that he needs to take the invisible and bring it into the visible realm. He chooses to believe that Jesus has a plan even when he can't see what Jesus is going to do. And the invisible manifests in the visible. God's plan comes to fruition. So my job is to know the truth teller. And then regardless of how I feel, regardless if I've been fishing 12 days, 12 months, 12 years, my whole life, Jesus says, go to this spot. I know you don't think it's your honey hole, but do what I tell you to do and watch what I'm going to do as a result of what I tell you to do. Truth that you believe and then obey. Here's the next thing that's in, in the slides. What does this shield look like? Well, it starts with truth. And that truth is leaned in on, and then you have belief. And then there's this third part of it. I'm going to try to give you a story of what this looks like, and I'm just going to test it on the first service. And I'm going to give you like a, a, a metaphor to walk in. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But let's just throw out the formula. What does your shield look like? Well, it starts with the truth. It's held together by the truth. And then that truth is built on with the belief that you align yourself with. You're saying this truth now becomes my truth regardless of how I feel. And then here's the third piece of it. Faith has to be defined this way. You, you can know it. You can believe it. And guess what? Even the devil himself would align himself with you. That doesn't separate you from the enemy. You can know the truth and you can believe that it's true. But if you don't obey the truth, James says this, faith without works is dead. If you don't then choose to obey what Jesus has defined as truth in your life, then you have no shield to fight. There's a third piece of the equation. The shield is built on belief that then leads to obedience. So here is the analogy that I'm going to give you, and we'll see if it works. If you don't like it, uh, tell all your friends in the second service, stay home today. Or here it is. If you're like me, you kind of like going to the doctor. My doctor is someone I respect. He's a Christian, and I like him. But I don't like what he tells me. And so, you know, he's still learning. He's only been a doctor for a long time, but he's still learning. He tells me what my weight should be. I don't like that. And then sometimes I tell him what I think is wrong, and he gives me a look that it's not like I don't believe you. It's just I know more than you. And so when you go to the doctor, you typically go to the doctor well, usually, always, unless you just want to hang out and pay that bill for no reason. If, if you go to the doctor, it's because you have a problem you can't fix. Are we tracking? Like, that's all of us. And so you go to someone who's smarter than you, that has more truth than you, to someone that you lean in on faith, that you believe their truth, even when it doesn't line up with your truth. Or maybe you're a medical skeptic, and that's a different conversation. And not that you shouldn't skept, be a skeptic sometimes, but in a general sense, if you don't think the doctor knows more than you, then you never go to a doctor, and then you're in trouble. And so when I go to the doctor, even when he tells me things I don't want to hear, I respect him, and I know that he's smarter than me, and so I listen to him. And so you go to the doctor, and uh, maybe it's a stomach issue. I heard this analogy this week on Right Now Home Media, so I'm going to try to use it. And it's a stomach issue, and so you, you, you took your first step. You tried to fix it for yourself to make your life better. You went to the pharmacy, and you didn't have access to the prescriptions, but you had access to those things at the grocery store that you could buy for 8 or 10 bucks. And you had this stomach issue, and a week later, you still had a stomach issue. Two weeks later, you still have a stomach issue. And so you go to, you know, my doctor is Dr. Brandon. So you, you go to your doctor, and you have a problem. What do you say? You say, Brandon, my stomach hurts. And he gives you this look of trying to solve the riddle. 
And in his attempt to start uprooting the problem, you talk about how you feel. But what he's doing, I would assume, is he's going past how you feel and trying to get to the root cause of the sickness. So he's hearing your story, but he's not certainly convinced that you know what you're actually dealing with. He's even looking at your pain and going, well, is that the actual root problem or is that the symptom of a problem? And so you start unpacking that for your doctor. You go to the doctor because there's something that you can't fix. You try to take care of it yourself. And so you tell them, my stomach hurts. And all you know is the pain, but you don't know the real problem. And until you get to the truth, this is what my doctor knows, until you get to the truth, you can't fix the real problem. And so your doctor solves it. He thinks he knows or she thinks she knows, depending on the doctor that you go to. And then the doctor writes a prescription. And because they're a doctor, you can't even read it. It's like, despite my lack of intelligence, based on my writing, I could have been a physician. And so then the doctor writes something that you can't read. And so you have this faith that they know the truth, that their truth stands above your truth. And then you have faith in someone else. You have a faith in a pharmacist at the local grocery store that you take it to that can somehow decrypt or, or decipher this, this wording that doesn't even make sense and these letters that they're jumbled together. And then you give them the script in faith, trusting that your doctor knows more than you, that your pharmacist knows more than you, and that they have this riddle solved. And then he gives you stuff that you can't buy on your own. You take the paper that you don't understand. You give it to the pharmacist. The pharmacist goes back and makes this cocktail, puts it all together, whole bunch of things happening that you don't even know what's happening, and you have faith in the qualifications now of the doctor and the pharmacist of the standard of the truth that you need in your life. And then you do all of that, and you get the script. I'm trust, trust me, this is going somewhere, so just stay tight. And now you have the script, and so now you have the truth truth that you've aligned yourself with, you've picked up the meds, but your stomach still hurts. Well, why does your stomach still hurt? Because you can believe, you can believe that that truth stands above you. You can take a step of faith by going and seeking out that truth. You can read it for yourself if you can decipher what the script even means. And you can believe the doctor with your whole heart that he knows more than you or that she knows more than you, that they've given you the right medication. But there's this last piece of the puzzle, belief built on obedience. Without obedience, you won't get any better because without obedience, you only treat symptoms and not problems. Without obedience, you go get the script, you go to the doctor, but look at me, you don't take the medicine. You have to take the next step. Your shield of faith is built on Believing that something is true, that's the word of God, getting the script to fix it, going and get the medication, and then the obedience, faith without works is dead, the obedience piece of it that brings it all together to make it a shield that's impenetrable is that you have to take the script. You have to do the thing. Even if you don't understand all the reasons for it, your shield of faith will always be the shield of straw if you go to the doctor, if you get the script, and then you take your medication home. And some of you have done this, right? You take about two of the 10 antibiotics that you've been given, right? You can go through all the hoops, and if you leave that medication in the glove box of your car, your stomach is still gonna be messed up. Obedience 
is the critical step in the process. Faith is action-based on the authorization of the one who knows more than you. So, so here's the closing idea. What you want and what I want is a shield that works. And in order for a shield to work, it has to be, and you'll see this on here, it has to be fireproof, doesn't it? And we, we would look at this, if you've ever thought about being in a battle, you would look at it and say, man, I don't want to get stabbed by an arrow, but, but more importantly, getting stabbed by an arrow is shoring up the wall. Even if your shield protects and the, and the arrow falls by the wayside, if you don't shore up the wall, then the fire gets in and the fire wreaks havoc and the fire burns down everything. And the thing about the shield of faith, and so there's this saving faith that when you receive Christ, you're saved, and that's, that's how that works, right? But the fighting faith is different than the saving faith. The saving faith is, Jesus saved me based on nothing that I've done. The fighting faith is, I'm going to choose to take the script. I'm going to choose to take the medicine. And this is something, when you're building this shield up to protect you, to protect your kids, to protect your wife if you are a man in your home, to protect your local church, to protect your community, the fighting shield is something that you have to pick up as prescribed, as needed. You're saved because of what Jesus has already done. That's the theological construct of your saving faith. But your fighting faith is every battle can expose new cracks in the wall. Every temptation can produce self-reliance. This is material that's not set in stone. Fighting faith consistently chooses to fix its eyes on Jesus Christ, the author. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us. The author and protect, perfect, protector of our what? I gave it away. It's the whole message. The author and protector of our faith. And so we have to fireproof, we have to shore up. This is something we're saved when we say yes to Jesus because of what he's already done for us. But our shield that we choose to prescribe as needed when the arrows are flying is something that we have to continually check. Where am I finding my truth? Am I relying on myself and my own desires? Or am I relying on the gospel of Jesus Christ to carry me through the storms of life because the arrows are already flying? And then our choice to fireproof our house, to fireproof our militia, is our choice is, are we going to fix our eyes on Christ? Are we going to find the victory in him and him alone? Or are we going to try to self-preserve by doing things that don't work? And I've said this a thousand times. I heard it from Matt Chandler in 2012. Here it is. Broken cannot fix broken. And your shield of faith built a straw is an absolute disaster in your life. And so the way we fireproof and shore up is we fix our eyes on Christ. Praise team can get back ready to roll. Don't come up quite yet if you're sitting there. I want to tell a story about 1996. I was 16 years old. I don't remember it. Um, didn't watch a lot of gymnastics. But does anyone any remember a girl in 96 named Carrie Strug? <laughs> How many little gymnasts like, I'm going to be a gymnast. And then you realize they're like four feet tall, <laughs> so you didn't work out. But Carrie Strug in the 96 Olympics, the U.S. was in second place. And according to the story, she was the last gymnast to go. She needed a certain score to overcome so that the U.S. would get the gold medal. And she stands ready for the vault. She takes off running. She hits the board. She hits the horse. She does whatever, you know, 
things she does. She's flipping around in the air, and she's a great gymnast, but she comes down wrong, and she twists her ankle so bad that she's limping on one leg, and she can't even walk. Now, here, here's the catch. She has one jump left, and for them to get the gold, she has to still be a part of the process. There's no one else that can do it but her. And so she gets a low score. There's a hush over the crowd. The team is cringing. Carrie begins to weep, but she still has one more jump. She can't put any pressure on her leg. And then the whole crowd's cheering before this move. Rudy, Rudy. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. The coach is in the corner and sees her crying. And he says, Carrie, look at me. Carrie, don't take your eyes off of me. Carrie, I know your leg is jacked up, but focus on me. Carrie, I know that you're in pain, but focus on me. I want you to do what I tell you to do. Even when you can't see the outcome, I want you to put on your shield of faith, and I want you to trust me. And here's what I want you to do throughout the whole process. This is what a good coach does, and this is why I do this in church. Are you ready? He says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then little Carrie, the gymnast, going for the gold, looks at her coach, takes her eyes off of her circumstance and keeps her attention focused on him the entire time. She goes back to that spot and she nails it, lands the jump, gold medal, hops on the springboard, hits the horse, nails the landing, immediately lifts up the bad foot, kind of like Karate Kid, right? She has to do that, but she lands it first and they get the gold medal. What does she do? She fireproofs her scenario by keeping her eyes fixed on the one who has the truth in her life. Where are you at? Are you wearing the truth of the gospel that stands outside of you? Are you operating in it? Is righteousness a byproduct of that truth? Do you have these shoes of peace that are rooted in the fact that you don't have to live constantly with angst, even if your emotive state is feeling anxious because of what Jesus has already done for you? And then are you landing the jump and are you wearing the shield of faith in your life? First John 5, 4 says this, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world. And here it is, our faith. Our faith protects, and ultimately, we obey. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can come together and wrap ourselves around the truth. And so we want to walk in this truth individually. We want to wear this faith individually, and we want it to protect us from the arrows, but we also want to build a wall. We want to build a wall called new life that's rooted in the gospel. We want to build a wall in our homes that's rooted in the gospel that, that shores up each shield and composes a wall that cannot be penetrated. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Convict us and transform us. And we pray these things in your name. And everybody said, amen.